kind of early in the morning, Marcus, to be down here by the river at the point in the Tennessee where it turns past Muscle Shoals, Sheffield, Alabama. But it's kind of pretty at 6 a.m., river flowing by, everything waking up. Something woke up in this part of Alabama, buddy, and we're here to talk about it today. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And we've talked about coming down here to Alabama, standing on the shores at Muscle Shoals, taking it all in, and talking about the amazing explosion of music that happened right here for a long time, man. This little town on the bank of the Tennessee River has such a rich musical history. It is an area where they did a perfect blend of gospel, soul, country, and a little jazz to spice. They did it the best, and you hear it in the sound. They are not far from Memphis and Stax Records, and you hear the Stax sound carry into it, but it takes its own twist and its own turn and its own attitude and its own vibe, and it becomes something so beautifully different, but still equally powerful. Kind of like the area where it's situated. As Bono says during the documentary we watched, it's the river. The songs come out of the mud. The river that sings. The new Nazi river. A place of music. Iuchi. Very cool. The spot creates a vibe. And I couldn't believe the number of people who basically attested to that, including a woman who got her recording start there. And we'll talk about that as we go forward on this episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, all about Muscle Shoals. Brought to you by Boldfoot Socks and by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And we thank them both for their support of our adventure in the mud. I kept digging for the beginning, the real beginning, because we all know about Rick Hall and his fame studios and the Swampers and all the different elements that make this whole musical explosion happen. But where did it come from? And I was watching the documentary, and Tom Stafford had a small studio over a drugstore in town, and he loaned money? He invested like $500 into their studio business, the first the first Rick Hall studio. And I know one of your favorite stories is how he met Arthur Alexander, who became a key part of the studio flow and the work that they would do early on. That story is very cool. Arthur Alexander being a bellhop at a local hotel ran into Rick Hall and they started talking. Alexander said, hey, what do you think of this song? He sang it to him. It's funny how it happens that way, right? Hey, yeah. I got this song. What do you think? And uh, Rick Hall was like, you know, that sounds like it could be a hit. Let's get in the studio. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love. You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of. But who are you? They recorded You Better Move On, which eventually was done by the Rolling Stones. Well, I know. And then the Beatles did his song, Anna, and Arthur Alexander became one of those, who's Arthur Alexander questions everywhere. 
he was covered by a lot of people, and he may be the only artist to be covered by Dylan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. And in that research documentary, department. that's a good research department question indeed. It was interesting that both of those bands had Arthur Alexander on their radar early. Another little thing that popped onto my radar is that the Muscle Shoals rhythm section opened for the Beatles at their first U.S. concert in Washington. How about that? That's crazy. (laughs) Wow. The shit we learn when we do research for this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I know. And I discovered the source of the name The Swampers. Denny Cordell, who would work with Skinner and others, was working with Leon Russell, and he kind of gave them that nickname, the four or five of them. And then, of course, they got the horns going down there, and they had an amazing sound. No matter the artist, no matter the genre or the style, they seemed able to play it all and give it their own little feel. And people came there for the feel. They came for the flavor, Marcus. Barry Beckett on keyboards. You also had Spooner Oldham in there, right? Mm -hmm. Roger Hawkins on the drums, making it all go. The most unheralded member of the Swampers, David Hood on bass, and Jimmy Johnson on guitar. And he has fame and infamy in his mind, I think, at one point or some of the other stuff that he did as a producer later down the line. Can I talk to you about the Swampers down the line before we jump back into our history lesson? Sure. They became the first group of studio musicians ever to form their own studio, get their own publishing company, and their own trademark. And they became the Swampers officially. Barry Beckett, Roger Hawkins, David Hood, and Jimmy Johnson. Incorporated. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the Swampers. They, according to Roger, weren't great players, great musicians individually, but together they were great because they had a sound, they had a groove, they were funky, and to them, funky meant not smooth, and that was a very simple definition of what funky was. But they worked really well together, and a lot like Rick Hall, they also grew up very poor. Roger had to walk down a dirt road to catch a bus on the highway to go five miles into town every day with his mom. He lived north of Florence. Their parents, even though they were poor, still supported them in their love for music and saw it as possibly a way for them to make a better life, which they all wanted to do, is play music. When you think about it, what they did, and any local studio guys do, is you create a music life for yourself without going on the road. That's kind of cool, too. Yeah, they didn't seem to really want to go on the road. They enjoyed playing in the studio very much, and they were country boys in every sense of the word they just wanted to stay home and do their thing and be with their families and be with their friends but then make this beautiful music for a living oh my (laughs) had it all going on man i know you know i want to talk a little bit more about rick hall speaking of giving things a little more time because here's a guy who had tragedy in his life repeatedly throughout his life and then also seemed to have some bad luck, you could say, in business in terms, and yet at the same time was incredibly successful on his own terms multiple times. Yeah, man, talk about growing up poor. This guy grew up dirt poor, literally. The floor in his log cabin that he lived in was dirt. There was no electricity. There was no running water, no toilets. 
the straw beds that they slept on, they went out into the fields and grabbed the straw and made it into beds. That is rural poor, and I don't know if people have any grasp of what that level of poverty is. He grew up knowing that he wanted to be somebody and do something. He didn't know as a kid what it was, but he knew he wanted to be somebody. And even as a kid, like the tragedy started, he had a three-year-old brother that fell into a pot of boiling water. I read that and I was like... And that story is absolutely horrifying. And the mom was so broken up that she ended up leaving the family and working at a brothel. They went up, moved on, and he did a great job raising his son. Rick Hall learned a lot from his father, but God, that story Mm -hmm. is so heartbreaking about his brother and his mother. And And his wife, too. And his wife. uh, The tragedy with his wife. And really, I had a question in my head, Marcus, which is, did music save him? Yes, absolutely music saved him, without a doubt. In his later life, anytime he got messed up with booze or anything like that, he shot himself in the foot and self-destructed in so many ways. So burying his sorrow or burying his uh, pain and alcohol never worked. But he noticed when he buried himself in his studio work and writing songs, he did really well and found his happy place. Maybe no better example of that is the first recording session for Percy Sledge at his brand new studio. And as Rick said, you have to have a hit if you want to keep getting requests to produce records. And Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman, number one. starts to open doors for him immediately and that brings attention to the players that are in the studio at his studio percy sledge was an orderly at a hospital he kept his vocals or practiced his vocals singing to the patients before bed every night can you imagine having percy sledge sing you to sleep every night Talk about beautiful, holy cow. No matter what he was singing, right? No matter what he was singing. And one of the things that blew me away, because I had no idea the connection there, was when I found out Donna Godshaw was one of the women who sang backing vocals on that song. That's who I was talking about earlier. How about that? just like holy cow all of these southern connections are just crazy and then rick hall calls jerry wetzler and says yo you remember when you told me to call you if i get a hit yeah i got a hit and he started playing it loud in the background held it up jerry wexler heard it was like yeah that's a hit let's talk and as we know it was a huge hit And all of a sudden, everybody wanted that sound, that feeling especially, right? Absolutely. That feeling is extra special. It was the sound people came for. You couldn't get it anywhere else. It comes from the gut, the heart, the blood of your soul. It's very much like the Motown sound that people went to Detroit for. I didn't know that Helen Keller was from that area. And they say that she sensed the subconscious rhythm that the musicians all talk about that exists there in the shoals. Well, considering the first words she ever learned to speak or communicate was water, it says a lot about the power of that town and about that area. 
It's the magic of Mother Nature. It truly is. And others felt it too, like W.C. Handy. I didn't know he was from there and felt the music in what he was writing, even as a young man. Before he moved to St. Louis and codified the whole thing and wrote it all down, uh, he was from the Shoals. And Sam Phillips, a big fan of Rick and uh, the work that he did, and got a lot of his impressions on what he wanted to do from the people of the area, the same people who uh, caused a couple artists to go, really? Like Wilson Pickett, when he Mm -hmm. got to Alabama, his reaction was, is that really cotton? Like, he couldn't believe it, right? (laughs) Yep. Wilson Pickett took his music to the next level by coming down to Muscle Shoals to record. Mustang Sally. What happened with him and the crew was purely magical. And the fact that they have some of that on old black and white video is really impressive. You could feel the energy in the room watching them work and watching them interact. The narrators in the film, like Bono and Alicia Keys and Mm -hmm. Mick and Keith, all talk about the magic. There's a magic to uh, that place. It's funky. That's what Wilson Pickett was talking about, right? And Wexler, they said, felt a little bit out of his depth. All this stuff was happening, all these like really great interactions and reactions, and it really took off and was, I guess you'd say, all crystallized in the land of a thousand dances. One, two, three. One, two, three. And at the end of that, what's Pickett's reaction? It's funky. Jerry Wexler was from New York where they had teams writing and arranging and putting together all the little details of the song before the musician gets into the studio and hear all these cats building it from scratch and he's going, I can't do anything, but he got it and he got it right away and that was the important change for Jerry Wexler to move forward at what he did. I think they tell it really well in the documentary, so don't forget to check that out. Absolutely. And in there, it's the arrival of Aretha that changes a lot. First off, she's had a tough start at Columbia. I don't think she was handled well there. The material they gave her necessarily wasn't her best. But when she gets there, it's both incredible and incendiary. The session in Muscle Shoals, And the explosion of things and how it leads to a rift between Rick Hall and Jerry Wexler. And they go back to New York. And after Wexler gets back to New York and I'll never work with you, talk to you again, the phone rings because you know what? They didn't have that feel that Aretha created with the Swampers sitting in a circle in that studio. And the Swampers went to New York to finish the album for respect and songs like that. Amazing story. The fact that they got one song done in Muscle Shoals 
before everything took a bad turn was pretty incredible. The song is called I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You. They were stuck. They had a song, they had an artist, but nobody knew what to do. Not even all these geniuses. But out of that quietness came Spooner with... And I said, hey, Spooner's got it. That's it. Rita jumped right on it. It was cut within 15 to 20 minutes. You didn't have to ask, uh, what do you think? Everybody knew it was a hit. She isn't even the queen of soul yet, but she's about to become that. Very momentarily, she kind of slides in there, and she starts doing her thing. And nobody had to tell them anything. They didn't need those charts. Mm -hmm. They just rolled with it and created an amazing, organic creation. One of the Swampers said that when she first walked into the room, she had this aura of magic about her and really vibed out the room really hard. And even though the other Swampers were there, they weren't really paying as much attention to her. And then she sat down at the piano and whipped out some wicked chord that they'd never heard before. And it got everybody's attention right away. And they were. I saw that in the documentary. You could see the look on her face like, what's she doing? Yep. And she even said that she couldn't believe that these white guys were as greasy as they were in the studio, but (laughs) it worked out really well for her. And I think she really enjoyed it because it's the first song where she got to be free and got to really announce herself to the world. And the song is absolutely brilliant. It is beautiful. Her voice is incredible. And this is where things get crossed up and there's trouble between Ted White, her husband, and a horn player. And Rick gets in the middle and Jerry tells him not to and they all falls apart, right? And then they go to New York and they end up finishing it there. But it really puts a rift between Jerry and Rick Hall. But he has another friend, Leonard Chess, who kind of brings Etta James around to record because he's heard about that magic feeling in the studio there. And Etta, well, she needs a hit at this point. So Chess Records becomes a friend to Rick Hall and Fame Recordings. Jerry Wexler told him that he would he would never record again, and he responded like, oh, yes, I will, because I will live longer than you. And that yeah. was a pretty cocky thing to say. But he was bold in saying that, but he was also smart in reaching out to Leonard Chess right away and getting the ball rolling elsewhere. And Etta James, what a voice. Some of my favorite sides ever recorded. Clarence Carter was in that group of uh, people that uh, were sent down with uh, Leonard Chess and some very talented singers. My favorite story about Clarence Carter is when he gets the song Patches presented to him by uh, Rick. And he's like, wait a minute, man. I don't know. You know, this really doesn't help my people. This isn't the direction we're going in, you know, and it's a time for change for America, uh, black Americans, and men are trying to do a better job of projecting a positive image and all that, right? Mm-hmm. And he's not sure, and then Rick kind of stops him and says, well, I understand, Clarence, uh, but it's really my story. And it's one of those moments black and white starts to recognize, you know what? I'll sing your song because it's your story. 
And if people ask, I'll tell them it's Rick's story. <laughs> but Clarence took away all his misgivings and had a monster hit. It's in my 45 collection, Marcus. It's a great song. And boy, did he uh, take the real down part of Rick Hall's life and give it an upbeat light at the end of the tunnel. Hey, look, good things can happen through the wake of tragedy. It's an amazing story, Marcus. And we're really just getting started. But we should pause and uh, let our sponsors have their turn here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll i mean it's a perfect place in the story too because this is where jerry wexler splits with rick hall so naturally rick's gotta go and find some new label partners and we have the story of what happens when he does that and returns to muscle shoals next on the imbalanced history of rock and roll it's fall, and I know, Marcus, that you've got a ton of anecdotal stories about your feet and riding and running and all that stuff that you do in the fall, and I know bold foot socks are part of your regiment, right? Absolutely. They wick moisture off your feet and keep them dry. I do wear the bold foot socks when I bike, and never, ever have I had swampy feet. And I've ridden on almost a 100-degree heat index day, and my feet right. weren't this swampy. Summer so, right? yeah, I really like what they do. And another bonus is they're American-made. Boldfoot Socks is a company that uh, Josh got into because he did a 100K thing. Where, who could, Man, who has time for that, man? He's amazing. So he goes and does this 100K in these Boldfoot Socks, and the socks perform so well, he believes, and he's right, that these socks are really going to revolutionize footwear for people who work out and ride, especially uh, someone like you who rides a lot on their on their bike. And let's not forget, Josh did that like hundred mile run in the Nevada desert. That what? is gnarly and tough. And he donates portions of his sales to military charities, which is awesome. So go check out their amazing variety of colors and styles. Great socks. And you can find them all at boldfoot.com. Thanks to them for their support of the podcast. As always, Boldfoot Socks, American grown, American sewn. So much has been happening this year and changing at Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor for a long time now, Marcus. Since 2014, they've been pouring the cure for what ails you, but then they added craft cocktails. Then they added ciders. And recently, they opened the Crooked Eye Kitchen and Salty Vets Barbecue being served at the premises. You used to have to bring something with you. Now just bring your appetite. The long-term business plan of Crooked Eye has been very smart. Whatever they were going to do before the pandemic had to change drastically, and they've made the adjustments. And as we've slowly opened up, they've slowly continued to add and add and create more. And it's much to the delight of the people going in there all the time, because like you've said, every night's a party, a different kind of party over That's at Crooked Eye. It's and a random party. what the music is, like the Blues Jam or the second Tuesday of the month with my vinyl night, which is anything you want it to be. The Crooked Eye Band and all the other performers who make it fun, Mafia, all performing, check it all out. And the way to find out about who's playing when is on their Facebook. That's really the best way to keep up, but the website too, I guess. So if you're looking for a place to go, make a plan, grab a friend, meet at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro, serving you since 2014. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Back down in the Alabama-Tennessee River mud with Ray and Marcus on this episode, all about the music that came out of that muscle shoals stretch. Those swampers, they they have a distinct sound, you know. They do have a distinct sound, and it's a distinct sound that many people are familiar with because of all of the music and all of the records. Oh, my God. Hey, we got to do a shotgun five favorites before we get done with this episode, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. I can do it, I think. It's a pretty tough task, though, man. So much great music. So when we went to the break, uh, Rick Hall was licking his wounds about breaking up with Atlantic Records and Jerry, right? And looking for a new partner. And he travels west to meet with Capitol Records about a really great list of artists that could come down to record with Muscle Shoals and be part of what he's got going on there as far as hit records, which is a lot, man. It's a lot. So, the Swampers are back home. They're kind of laying up, doing some sessions, and thinking about what Rick's out in California working on, right? Now, while he's out there, they're working on something else. Yeah, the uh, Swampers wanted to open up their own studio, so... They did, and they found a new location, basically split. The famous address, 3614 Jackson Highway. In fact, Cher, the first project that was recorded there, made that the name of her album, kind of like to mark the occasion. Yeah. The impressive thing I found about the fact that they did what they did is they were able to still keep the Muscle Shoals sound alive and to be able to create another studio with equally great sound and equally great energy from the mud was pretty impressive because I think that splitting off might have been the biggest challenge. It could have been death to one or both operations if you think about it because they were splitting the energies and the talent however what rick did was went out and contracted all the best available players he could find everywhere around locked them all up so he had them all available to him and continued to make great hit records for his friends at capital including more records that are in my 45 collection And then the Swampers were over there, and at first, things aren't going so well. Uh, yeah, we're getting some projects. Uh, Jerry helped us with a couple things, the Share Record and others. Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at the list if you want to see the list of releases there at the beginning of their studios. Mm-hmm. But really, they were kind of bumping along until a tour bus showed up in the middle of the night one time to do a hush-hush session of a few songs talking about the Rolling Stones and the songs they would record there at Muscle Shoals that would basically be part of the backbone on what would be their label-launching album, Sticky Fingers. After that, I guess people knew who they were. (laughs) And you had people like Simon and Garfunkel both went there as solo musicians after they split ways. You had 
Blackfoot there. Bob Seger did Night Moves, did Main Street. One of the things that I think it was Jimmy or Barry said that it was great that they had a 10-year run of Bob recording there. And on some of the albums, they did half the album. And some songs, they did almost everything. So it's kind of neat. And they really had a tight association. Main Street being one of the big songs, yeah. George Michael recorded Careless Whisper at Muscle Shoals. When I I saw that, I was like, what? And if you have not heard the Brothers album by the Black Keys, I recommend you go check that one out, too. They captured the Muscle Shoals vibe very well on that record. Dr. Hook, Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner. Joe Cocker. Oh, yes. Street Survivors was recorded at Muscle Shoals. And it was a return for the Skinner guys. Early on, they had done some sessions there in Muscle Shoals, what would become the first and last album after members of the band perished in the plane crash. Those sessions became like, oh man, golden stuff to have. then it became part of the Skinner catalog. One of my favorite stories from the documentary is the whole thing about them recording Freebird in the studio there. At the time we were cutting Freebird. We took a little lunch break. We walk in, the engineer had started playing the tape. Billy Powell, who's the roadie, he was sitting in there playing this concert piano that was so unbelievable that we walked in just in like awe with our mouth open. And I look at Ronnie and he looks at me and I say, I gotta go and record with that. I don't know about you. And he said, you got it. We put him on the record and then he became a band member within a few months. He was concert pianist and nobody knew it, not anybody. Everybody nudged each other like, what's up with Billy? Who didn't tell us that he is an impresario on a piano? That's exactly how it happened. So they kept it. They did it. They kept it. And then, of course, you know, rock and roll history as it goes. They're part of that, even though they did almost all their recording at Studio One in Doraville in Georgia. That was where they started. And that's where you had, you know, the situation where Ricky Medlock's playing drums on one track on uh, Mm -hmm. that ends up on that first and last thing. True. All part of the story of Muscle Shoals. And I almost ended up there when we launched the 20 album back in 1997 when the band came back with a studio record. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't make the decision in time to join the company to be part of that party, but that would have been my only uh, visit to Alabama if I had. So there you uh, go. That would have been sweet. Yeah. To but, be there with those guys launching that record. Mm-hmm. Boy, we had so much fun. I'll just say that. And think about this. Uh, had Dwayne Allman never camped out at the famous studios street survivors might not have ever been recorded at muscle shoals because Dwayne was having problems with his band in la and they'd only played like three concerts in a year he was getting ready to head back towards muscle shoals and greg was like hey man come horseback riding with me they went horseback riding Dwayne fell off the horse broke his arm was really pissed at Greg, didn't talk to him for a while. And so to make the peace, Greg bought Dwayne the Taj Mahal album and a vial of pills from a pharmacy to help him with his cold that he had while he had a broken arm. And like two and a half hours later, Dwayne calls Greg and says, hey, dude, come on over here. And he shows him that he dumped the pills out of the pill bottle, took that glass bottle, and used it as a slide, and with a broken arm was playing slide guitar to the Taj Mahal record. And Greg was like, I can't fucking believe he picked it up that quickly. Holy shit. And the guys at uh, Muscle Shoals all said that he was the finest slide guitar player that they had ever played with in the studio at that time. The first session he worked on was the Wilson Pickett session.
and because he had long hair, and the only thing worse than a person of color in Muscle Shoals hanging out with white people was a long hair hanging out with white people. Yeah. Wilson Pickett stayed behind in the studio to work on a few things. And everybody else went to get lunch, and they're sitting there, and Gray and Dwayne was like, hey, man, you need to cover Hey Jude by the Beatles. And he's like, nobody covers the Beatles. And he's like, that's exactly why you should do it. And, of course, you right. know the Beatles would be completely flattered and honored that these soul greats would cover their songs in return because they've shown respect to some of these soul greats. So there would be a lot of honor and flattering there. Nobody could believe they were doing it, and Dwayne put it together with Wilson, and they absolutely fucking crush it. Absolutely. Legendary moment in musical history. And according to uh, Roger, that was the birth of Southern Rock. Right there, that guitar work on Hey Jude by Dwayne Allman was the birth of Southern Rock. Well, one thing for sure, buddy, is there was no shortage of talent and no shortage of hits because out of the deal he'd made, Rick Hall keeps finding new people and making new records, and both seem to be doing pretty well, you know, after a false start with the Swampers in their studio. So you've got more going on and more people coming to this little turn in the river in Alabama. It's crazy, right? People really are inspired by the feel and the sound of the music being made in Muscle Shoals. My take both on the Swampers and the Horn guys and the more contemporary members of the rhythm section and Donna Jean, too, is that I think they're all amazed and humbled by the role they've played. Some of them are getting up there. It may not be with us forever. The documentary is there to preserve their memories and their thoughts. What they did was really break down, socially break down a lot of things that didn't need to be there. And they proved it in the music, in the grooves that they are immortalized in. They proved it in the way they worked together and things like color of skin did not matter. They just were connected by the music, by the songs. Music has a lot of power. And so does that river. This singing river, as Donna Jean Godshaw sings at the end of the documentary. Uh, the B-roll, the film, is the guys having a reunion, right? Mm -hmm. They're bigger than any museum. They're the Swampers. Rick Hall passed away in 2018. During the outtakes of the end of the documentary, when they all kind of got together and hung out, he and the Swampers... He was very forgiving, and I think he was at peace with everything that happened, which is nice because no reason to go to your grave all bitter and angry. You know, I was happy to see that as the resolution, and um, just for the record, too, he did outlive Jerry Wexler by 10 years. <laughs> just wanted to say. And that's not why I wanted to make the comment. It was more about that moment that you're talking about there, and it was really nice to see them all going, you know what? We fucking did it, guys. We said we were going to do it, then we did it. I guess that's their credo. We did it! <laughs> One thing that they did not tell us is, did Rick Hall and Jerry Wexler ever make amends or make peace? Do we still have time to do five favorites? Uh, a little shotgun version for our uh, favorite stuff from Muscle Shoals? Of course, we're recording digitally and we have the power of editing. We can do whatever we want. Like saying what I'm saying right now backwards and forwards all together at the same time? I can do that. <laughs> it is a shotgun five favorites, and I flipped a coin backstage, and I'm going to go first. Oh. And basically, I'm going to give you my five favorite. How many do you think we'll have in common out of all these amazing songs? Even though Vegas is saying no shotgun five favorites are included in the betting, I'm going to say two. I'm going to say two. I'm going to say two as well. So I think two's a fair. Yeah. All right, my number five. Are you ready? Yes. They showed up in the middle of the night with the tour bus, and they left in the morning with a wake of destruction and three amazing songs in their bus. Brown Sugar, number five, from the Stones. My number four is actually the B-side of Tell Mama. 
the Clarence Carter song recorded at Fame. It's Etta James doing I'd Rather Go Blind, my number four. Quite a story around my number three, Marcus. It's the story of showing up, having a breakup, going back to New York, finishing the song, and having a number one breakthrough for Aretha Franklin. I'm talking about R-E-S-P-E-C-T, my number three. When it comes right down to it, Marcus, my number two. Who can you really top when a man loves a woman? The first record, the first record for Percy Sledge, Donna Jean, Gotcha on vocals. Wexler got the call for it to be a number one. But my number one, I'll take you there. It's a little place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Pops is on the guitar, girls are singing, and I'll take you there. Right up to number one from the Staples Singer. Tag, respect yourself just for good measure. Dude, what a great list. And the Staples singers, Mavis Staples, still outdoing it today. What a voice she still has today. I'll take you there. May be the epitome of everything they did at Muscle Shoals there. On all the studios, all the work, all everything. Really so that good. Marcus, your shotgun five favorites from Muscle Shoals. Number five, Tell Mama, Etta James. Close to one there. Yes, That's, we did. You That's took the B dinner. side. I took the A side. <laughs> Number four in the midnight hour, Wilson Pickett. I just love that song. I first heard it as a kid but then i heard the jam and the style council both cover that on some b-sides and on some live shows and was so stoked to hear their cover of it that it made me love the original even more number three is i think your number two percy sledge when a man loves a woman yes song is just magical everything about that i still get goosebumps and even alicia keys talked about how she got goosebumps and still gets goosebumps when she hears songs like that today so a powerful song and percy sledge was so amazing in that number two wilson pickett's hey jude he made the list twice i really love his voice and i love his style but his version of hey jude i think is just incredible and number one Aretha's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You.
And I think just because of the story behind it, and I think how it happened and how it really introduced Aretha as who Aretha really is to the world, it holds a special place in the music world. Listening to it in the last couple of weeks, I really, really fell back in love with that song again hard, and it's so beautiful. Want to hit you with a couple honorable mentions. Uh, we mentioned Patches earlier, the story of Rick Hall. Also, Bama Boys, uh, Sanford Towns, and Smoke from a Distant Fire. Remember them? Oh, yes. What a great song. I remember that coming on the radio as a kid on FM radio. What a great song. I have it in my vinyl collection. You want it? Uh, Arthur Conley, Sweet Soul Music. You remember that one? That might be before your time, but that's some hot stuff. I do remember that one. The Wicked Wilson Pickett in the Midnight Hour and 6345789 in my honorable mentions. Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood. Two from Seeger, Beautiful Loser, and Main Street, which we mentioned before. All my honorable mentions. I could go on for an hour. I think every other song should be included in the honorable mention. But seriously, like Main Street by Bob Seger made my honorable mention list because of the feel of that one. It takes Detroit to the muddy banks of the Tennessee River, and it really gives it an extra raw meatiness. I love Slip Away by Clarence Carter. Steal Away, Jimmy Hughes song really uh, hit me hard and really moved me during the preparation for this episode. And we have two in common, as we kind of figured we would. It's not the two we probably thought we would. (laughs) And we came close to being right on the money with Tell Mama, so how about that? Pretty awesome. I'll tell you what, I learned a lot, as we always do whenever we explore, but I also really appreciate even more the music that came from that place along the river right there in uh, north alabama hey listen if we missed anything talk about muscle shoals or maybe you've got a five favorites you want to throw our way do it on email imbalancedhistory at gmail.com you can pretty much find us anywhere on Google. Just type in imbalanced with an I, history. Find us on social media, and we'd love to interact with you. So share I'm any... going to get a TikTok account for us, and we're going to do stupid fucking videos for no, like not. 10 hours a day. No, we can't do that. We're too old. <laughs> Thanks to Pantheon Podcast for keeping us going, and also our sponsors, boldfoot.com. They've got great socks. Check them out at boldfoot.com. Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro Poor, the cure for what ails you since 2014, coming up on 10 years, buddy. And they've been supporting us for most of that time. So thank you, thank you, thank you both for being part of this crazy thing. And our dig in the muscle shoals will bring you each a cup of mud. And we'll catch you next time we crack the mic. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the imbalanced history of rock and roll.